0: And as we come back to Numbers, we're going to be picking up in chapter 26. And I mentioned two weeks ago when we left off with Balaam and Balak that when we get back to Numbers this Tuesday night, it's a a transition in the book. Because now we're really near the end of the wilderness wandering, the 40 years of the Jews wandering the wilderness, getting prepared as a nation to come into the promised land, modern Israel. And as we come to chapter 26, we have a new census. Now, this book started with the census. We started with the census of everyone over 20, able to go to war, and that headcount was about 600, 603,000. And this census tonight, it's a new census, almost 40 years later, and the numbers is slightly below. It's a 1,000, so it's kind of stagnant, not a lot of variation, very moderate drop-off on the overall numbers in the wilderness wandering. So there was one census that ended the people, that started the people in the wilderness wandering, and then now there's another census as everyone, because they didn't go into Kadesh Barina, but believe the bad report, everyone over 20 is not going to go in. So that whole generation died in the wilderness, and now the new generation has arisen growing up in the wilderness, everyone under 20, and those born since that time, and this is a new census for them, and also the Levites who were born during that time of the tribe of Levi. So we pick it up with this census Going forward, the second census, a different census. There's one that starts it, and there's one that ends it with the wilderness wandering. So chapter 26, verse 1, we read this. And it came to pass after the plague. That was the plague with Balaam and Balak that affected the Israelites in a bad way. And it came to pass after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and above by their father's house, all who were able to go to war in Israel. So Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and above, just as the Lord commanded Moses and the throne of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt. So here is this census, and this is in the plain of Moab, so it's just on the opposite side of the Jordan River of modern Israel, what is now modern Jordan. And it's interesting because that first census would have been taken there at Mount Sinai with the excitement of having come out of Egypt and everyone's counted, and they've got the promises, and they go go forward. But then they didn't enter in. So anyone under 20 at that time, so let's just say you were 15 at that time, you waited almost 40 years. So now you're 55. You're like, man, I remember when I was a teenager. And there's things we remember as a teenager, right? Like I'm I'm older than 55, and there's things I remember as a teenager, like, oh wow, you know, like you you would remember that. So like, oh man. Remember when we were 15, they took the census there at Mount Sinai and we were like sophomores in high school and it was crazy and and then those guys made really bad decisions and we watched them all die like God said they would die and now we're finally being counted in the census because we're going in. See, it's it's a new beginning. This census is a whole new beginning except for Joshua and Caleb who are the only ones who made the cut from the previous census because of course they believe the promises of God and they are the exception which we see even later tonight. So this is that census taking at the plain of Moab as a nation has been prepared for 40 years and turned over, as generations turn over, for 40 years prepared, and now they're going to enter into that promised land. They're right on the cusp of it, and this is that census, so it's a different one. All right, now, we pick it up in verse 5, and we read this, and we go in order, the 12 tribes, and then the the subdivision of Joseph and plus the distinction of Levi. So, verse 5, Reuben was the firstborn of Israel... The children of Reuben were Hanak, the family of the Hanakites, of Palu, the family of the Paluites, of Hezron, the family of Hezronites, of Karmai, the family of the Carmites. These are the families of Reubenites. Those who were numbered of them were 43,730. And the sons of Palu were Eliab. The sons of Eliab were Nemul, Dathan, and Ibiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram, representatives of the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died when the fire devoured the 250 men they became a sign nevertheless the children of Korah did not die so with the first tribe Reuben in this list we're reminded of the events that happened with Dathan and and Abiram and Korah that whole event that we read about you know a few months back where they're in the middle of the wilderness wandering they led the rebellion against Moses and God dealt with them. He judged them openly and outwardly, and in that record that you read there in number 16, it says that these men perished with their households when the earth opened up, but it's interesting, you know, because this is a parenthetical thought or additional information that we didn't have when you would read that text, that these children, the sons of Korah, now it doesn't say the sons of Dathan and those guys are spared, just the sons of Korah were spared and that is given to us as a record that the children of Korah did not die. And this brings us some thought processes, if you know the scriptures, that we think about. Okay, well, so first of all, when God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, his blessings extend to generations. But for those who reject him, that his, his curse or plague can be upon to, the, to four generations. So we know, even in the giving of the law that God said that for those who serve me they're just bringing blessings, perpetual blessings upon their children, their children's children and extended generations, but those who reject me they're bringing a curse upon their children not because God so much is cursing them but if you choose not to let Jesus Christ reign over your house, you're you're, you're letting someone else reign over your house like the Bob Dylan song, you're going to serve somebody it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody and if Jesus Christ isn't the standard to reign over your house some standard is See, that's the the scary thing about all the movement toward globalism and and global communism is that communal living looks good when you think of Acts chapter 2 by choice, but when it's forced upon you by compulsion by people who are atheistic and agnostic, it's a terrible thing because it's a worldview devoid of God, and it attacks anything that stands for God. It it demands, like Caesar, full supremacy. And so some standard is going to raise your children, and for the Jewish nation, we'll see this in Deuteronomy. When you rise up, you tell your children, it's on your doorpost. When you go in the field, hey, God gave us this increase. When you come home, isn't God good to us this day? He brought the rain and the, the beauty of the birds and the cattle and all these things. That's, the, that's what we call a biblical worldview. And there are blessings perpetuated. And again, one need not look past the Billy Graham family as to the blessings that he received from his parents in North Carolina on a farm, what his wife Ruth received from her parents missionaries in China at the turn of the century. And then they had those blessings, and then they gave us, you know, Franklin, who's still going strong, and Franklin's children, and, and Graham Watts, and, and all of them. It's amazing, right? So, Sissy, even, you know, the, the next generation, and, and this is what godliness does when Christ is Lord of the home. But if Christ is not Lord of the home, then who is, who is Lord of the home? Because somebody, some worldview is influencing the society. Like the Chinese, of course, being communist and completely devoid of any faith in God, intolerant of any worldview other than theirs, which is secular, atheist, humanistic, agnostic, all those above, just no room for God. The state raises the children. And you can only raise one, right? Unless you pay taxes to have two children if you're really wealthy in that communist system. But they, they, they raised that. And speaking with my son, Luke, who is fluent in Mandarin, when I was in Denver, he talked about when he interacted with all these Chinese students when he was going through college at OCC and at GCU, Grand Canyon, and he communicated with lots of Chinese in full Mandarin. He reads Mandarin. He writes Mandarin. And he said, when I was here with him in Denver last week, he was talking about how, with his own peer group, that he's trying to explain to them the uniqueness of individuality in a society, that how God makes us individuals and, you know, the freedoms that we have as Americans allow us to express that individualism and thrive in that individualism and that, you know, the godly home presents an opportunity to rise and, you know, all the opportunities. We aren't victims. We have opportunities. And you can choose a victim mentality or you can choose the opportunities that that God has presented you in this great country. And he just said he was blown away by how the brainwashing of the system that the people were in of his peer group that were coming here as students were that they just couldn't wrap their mind around that and they were so convinced that you need to trust the state, you need to trust the government, you need to trust a secular, atheist, God-rejecting world government to raise the children because the parents can't. So the parents give the children to the state, they raise them, and they, they follow the state and thus Caesar is God. This is nothing new under the sun. So you think you have a house that can be blessed. Or a house that can be cursed. And your worldview shapes your house. And it perpetuates itself. So again, coming back to Korah's sons being spared. We think, okay, now Korah was a, a, not a good leader. He's, he, he led a rebellion and he died. Like Korah was swallowed up. But yet his sons found mercy. God chose to show mercy to these sons. Now, if you know your Bible, you know these guys are really important, right? Because the sons of Korah become important people. They become songwriters. And they praise the Lord and they write psalms that are in your book of psalms. Isn't that amazing? That God, even though there's a cycle of unbelief and perpetuating evil upon evil, and we know all kinds of evil people who produce evil people, who have power and position and all those things and pride, and they reproduce more evil people that act just like them. They're going to go the way they're going to go. But it is interesting how at times God will just intervene and show mercy on someone in an ungodly line or on. From an ungodly home and show them favor and grace because he knows something that's going to happen that's God's all-knowing and his foreknowledge all that stuff is outside our wheelhouse and he knows that so isn't it amazing when the ground was swallowing up these families and these people in rebellion and it was affecting most of their children their children's children they're completely wiped out but somehow these sons of Korah they're spared when it's all said and done they're standing there going like what just happened And the people at the censors, they're consumed. The next day, the 14,000, they're consumed. And the sons of Korah wake up a week week later going like, what just happened? How are we here? It's like when one person survives a plane crash, like why did I survive the plane crash, right? Like it's like, there's obviously a plan for your life. They were spared. They found mercy. And for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, centuries, these sons of Korah produced godly offspring That produced the word of God for us. That we even sing in songs to this day. Isn't that beautiful? How unsearchable are his ways. And mercies past finding. This should encourage us. When we think about other people and circumstances. Now for civil government. God says you'll never punish the sons. For the sins of the fathers. Nor the, the father for the sins of the sons. That's civil government. But what God wants to do with the sons of Korah. It's his business. It's very encouraging to me. When I read about the sons of Korah. Nevertheless. In the midst of judgment, there's grace. It's like that song back in the Maranatha days. It's, you know, faithfulness and sovereignty, holy is the Lord, judgment and grace. There's only like eight words in that song, and you sing it over and over and over, like 70s style at the tent or something. But it says judgment and grace. These sons of Korah, they found grace. We found grace. We're here in Folding Chairs on a Tuesday night. On January 19th, 2021. And you want to be a church. That's wonderful and that's beautiful, and we want to keep running with that. God bless the sons of Korah. What a witness to us of mercy and, judge, of mercy and grace upon people. And we want, to, we want to see and hope for mercy and grace for our lives and the people around us. We, we, we know we can have it, but we just, man, we just got to hope all things for people. And the book of Revelation makes it clear everyone just gets wiped out in the end. We're moving toward a global judgment, and it's plagues. And it's signs from the heavens, and we're moving toward that right now. There's no doubt about it. But the sons of Korah found mercy. And until the trumpet sounds, people can find mercy. And we just have to be agents of the kingdom that understand that even when things look horrible for certain people, their households, and their, how they live and their wickedness, that they, they can find mercy. We, we can't lose sight of that, because if we do, we've lost our place as salt and light on the earth, and our flavor is salt. And if Jesus says salt loses flavor, and it's good for nothing. So we have to keep our hearts very tender in 2021, no matter how much people come against the name of Jesus or those who follow him. Because God shows mercy to the children of Korah. They did not die. Verse 12. Now we get the, the tribes. We start to go forth. So we had Reuben as the first of the of the 12 tribes and then we just go in order of how the births came, actually. So, first of all, the sons of Simeon, according to their families, were of Namul. the families of the Nemulites of Jamin, the family of the Jaminites of Jakin, the family of the Jeconites of Zerah, the family of the Zerites of Shal, the family of the Shalites. These are the families of the Simeonites, 22,200. I will point out a couple of things here as we go through these tribes and their census. There's an ebb and flow. So some tribes decrease in their population, and some tribes increase in their population. Simeon's interesting because this is the largest decrease. They lost, their number goes down by 37,000 people. They lost 65 percent of their offspring from the wilderness wandering. They were one of the largest tribes at the beginning of the journey. They lost 65 percent of their people, two-thirds of the people of the descendants here. They perished in the wilderness wandering. So. A large group of people just disappeared, 37,000 of that tribe, 65%. They diminished greatly. Now, some tribes diminished slightly during the wilderness wandering, some tribes increased slightly, and some diminished dramatically, and some increased dramatically, so this is the biggest drop-off in a population of one of the twelve tribes, so I point that out to you just as a matter of note, in fact. Verse 15, the sons of Gad, according to their families, were of Zephon, the families of the Zephonites of Haggai, the family of the the Haggites of of Sunni, the family of the of Shunites of Ozeni, the family of the Ozanites, of Eri, the family of the Erites, of Erad, the family of the Eradites, of Arli, the family of the Aralites. These are the families of the sons of God according to those who were numbered to them 40,500. The sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their families, were Shalah, the family of the Shelonites, of Perez, the family of the Perezites, of Zerah, the family of the Zarites, And the sons of Perez were of Hezron, the family of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the family of the Hemalites. These are the families of Judah, according to those who were numbered them, 76,500. So here we've got now, we've got Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Judah. So there's four of the tribes right there. Verse 23. The sons of Issachar, according to their families, are of Tola, the families of the Tolites, of Pua, the family of the Punanites, of Jasheb, the family of the Jeshubites, of Shimeon, the family of the Shimonites. These are the families of Issachar, according to those who were numbered them, 64,300. The sons of Zebulun, according to their families, were of Sarad, the family of the Sarites of Elon, the family of the Elonites; of Jehielio, the family of the Jeheliites. These are the families of the Zebulunites, according to those who were numbered to them, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their families, were Manasseh and Ephraim. Now remember, this is the one tribe subdivided. So Joseph is one of the original 12 tribes, which includes the Levites. But when the Levites were set apart, you have 11 tribes, and the tribe of Joseph is then subdivided Manasseh and Ephraim. And thus we have here Manasseh and Ephraim. Verse 29. The sons of Manasseh, of Micar, the family of the Markites, the Markite begot Gilead, of Gilead, the family of the Gileites. These are the sons of Gilead. Of Jezre, the family of the Jezreites. Of Helik, the family of the Heliites, Of Asriel, the family of the Astrolites. Of Shechem, the family of the Shechemites. Of Shemida, the family of the Shemadites. Of Hepha, the family of the Herphites. Now Zolophad, the son of Hefner, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zolophad were Mahalah, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Tirzah. These are the families of Manasseh. And those who were numbered them were 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to their families, of the Shulot, of the Shethullah, the family of the Shulites of Buker. The family of the Bukerites, Tahan, the family of the Tanites. These are the sons of Shethullah of Aaron, the family of the Aaronites. These are the families of the sons of Ephraim, according to those who were numbered them, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph according to their families. What's interesting about Manasseh and Ephraim here is back in Genesis 49 when I had the prophecy when Jacob prophesied over his descendants that Joseph was a fruitful bow and that he would increase and From Joseph came these two large tribes, and it's worth noting that Manasseh gets the largest increase during the wilderness wandering. They bumped by 20,500 people. That's a 65% increase. So even as the Simeonites decreased by 37,000 in the overall camp of Israel, the Manassehites, they increased by 20,500. They multiplied. This is important when they get into the land for the subdivision of the land in the promised land. And so here you see the fulfillment of Genesis 49, where Manasseh and Ephraim would become large numerical tribes as descendants of Joseph, which is what God prophesied through Jacob. And of course, that's the same chapter of prophecy concerning Jesus, where it says the scepter the shall not depart from the tribe of Judah, referring to Jesus as a king who would always reign. And from the time David came to power as king from the tribe of Judah, the promises line all the way to Jesus on the cross until his triumphant return, which would seem very soon. We pick it up in verse 38. The sons of Benjamin, according to their families, were Bilah, the family of the Belites; Ashbel, the family of the Ashbelites; of Ahiram, the family of the Hiramites; of Shufam, the family of the Shufamites; of Hufam, the family of the Hufanites. And the sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, and Ard, the family of the Ardites of Naaman, the family of the Na- Namites. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their families, and those who were numbered of them were forty-five. Thousand six hundred. These are the sons of Dan, according to their families, of Shumah, the family of the Shumanites. These are the families of Dan, according to their families. All the families of the Shumanites, according to those who were numbered of them, sixty four thousand four hundred. Verse forty four. The sons of Asher, according to their families, were Jimna, the family of the Jimonites, of Jesu, the family of the Jesuites, of Barai, the family of the Barites, of the sons of Barai of Hebner, the family of the Herbites, of Malchil, the family of the Machilites. And the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah, and. Sarah. And these are the families of the sons of Asher, according to those who were numbered to them 53,400. The sons of Naphtali, according to their families, were of Gehaziel, the family of the Gehazilites, of Guni, the family of the Guniites, of Jezer, the family of the Jezerites, of Shelem, the family of the Shilamites. These are the families of Naphtali, according to their families, and those who were numbered to them were 45,400. These are those who were numbered to the children of Israel six hundred one thousand seven hundred thirty. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying to These, the land shall be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a larger inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to those who are numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot, and they shall inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot of their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. There's a couple of things we want to think about here with this second census now, having counted everybody. First of all, i point out that they were spiritually stagnant. Numerically, they were stagnant. They did not increase in that 40 years. They decreased. They were a decreasing population. They were stagnant. They didn't go forward. And that stagnation, numerically, can be pointed out to really reflect a lot how they were spiritually. Because they were dying spiritually for the 40 years, everyone over 20, while God's trying to infuse faith and obedience and calling in the next generation So it's a tricky time. It was a time of where a new generation had to find their traction that's going to enter in as they're watching the previous generation fade away and die in their unbelief and their sins, which even the daughters of Zolophad will make reference to in the next chapter tonight. So it's an unusual time, a time of stagnation. And really, if you think about in our own country, Pastor Chuck, before he stepped into eternity, I heard him say this a number of times, so listen to me carefully. He used to talk about all the babies aborted in America and how to change the population of America. That 70 million citizens that would have been born in this society, raised in our country as American citizens, second generation, third generation, whatever, extended generation, born in the country under American citizens, who had a second generation understanding of the culture, our laws, our values, and how we carry ourselves, that 70 million of those children were aborted. And we lost an entire workforce for the next generation of America during the time of the baby boomers. And so my generation, as 70 million of our peers were uh, killed without a chance to live, we lost a population of the American population. We lost a whole generation of people that would have been here, who didn't need to acclimate to understanding our worldviews and our values and the concepts of our founding fathers, our constitution, how we think. So because we lost 70 million people, we lost the continuity of our nation. Now, Europe's gone through a very similar thing because you have to have X amount of growth within a nation to maintain the culture of a nation, and this is why nations are always rising and falling and disappearing like Rome. Rome was overrun by the dramatic, overrun by the dramatic tribes, the Vandals, the Goths, and all those, and they eventually lost their identity of what held the people together culturally, politically. We've never been one ethnic people group, of course, because we're, we've always been a nation of immigrants, But as we move from immigrants of a biblical worldview to a secular worldview and false gods worldview, and as we've lost 70 million people who came from an American worldview and we replaced them with people, first generation people coming from other countries with contrary to Christian worldviews, their understanding of the foundation of our constitution, their understanding of how our founding fathers thought, and how they thought good things, and they gave great opportunities for a lot of people, where there are good people that created great opportunities, they're not bad people who subjected people, because they're so bad, everyone would want to leave this country and not come to this country. This is the only country you can say you hate and stay that you want to stay and when I was in Russia last year I found out something very interesting because the Russians understand this Russians are a very unified people if you don't understand that you need to know that Russians are Russian to be Russian is to be Russian is Russian way right is Russian so whether it was under the czars before the Bolshevik Revolution and the Civil War and then the Soviets Russia is Russia, and every Russian will tell you it's Mother Russia. So if you're going up into space, it's for Mother Russia. If you're being gunned down by Nazi bullets, it's for Mother Russia. If you're plowing the field in the communal living during the forties, it's for Russia. If you're going off to you know the gulags because of your ideologies somehow you're an enemy of Stalin, you're still a Russian. It's Russian way. And that continuity. So when I was in Russia, I found it very interesting with family of good friends who used to be here, Corey and Jane, Jane is Russian, she was a deacon's wife in this church, staying with her sister and her brother-in-law, that they have three children. And because they have three children, they have great support from the Russian government. It's Russian way. Because the Russian people want their people to reproduce Russians who understand Russian culture and Russian way. Well, that hasn't happened here. So I only bring it up because it's biblically contextual. That's why I'm bringing this up. This isn't political. This is biblically contextual. These people were not, they did not enter in. They did not grow spiritually and they decreased population-wise and they stagnated. God's plan is to be fruitful and multiply. And its application is so apparent in our country because we've lost that continuity. And we could have moved forward with all these favorable civil rights things that have happened in our timeline. They could have all happened, but we move from what is really good civil rights to ungodly laws in the name of civil rights that are unbiblical, ungodly, and destroy people, destroy nations, and destroy souls, and send people to hell. And the reason it's happened is because 70 million people that disappeared and other people came in with completely different views and and cultures and ideologies that broke that flow. And now look at us. See, we've been stagnant. I was born in 61, and they took prayer out of the schools. I went to junior high in 73, and they legalized abortion. And all I've seen in my entire lifetime is a uh, a degeneration of good biblical things. We've seen an improvement in certain civil rights, and no one's denying that. We've made things that were wrong better. But at the same time, godless men and godless women hijacked this country. As it says in Romans 1, and they're under the wrath of God, and they suppress the truth, which is what they've done and are continuing to do literally now in their ungodliness, and they're given over to their depravity, which is exactly what we're seeing. These people who think they're calling the shots all around us, watch them implode as time goes on. They will implode because God catches the wise and own craftiness, and the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. It will implode. And they're only doing what God said would happen in the last days in the end game. We are to look up. We're not children of darkness. We're children of light. And we're not hopeless. We're people of hope. So as we see these things going on and so much more, what does Jesus say? Be watching. Be ready. Stagnant generation. Stagnant faith. That's what they had for 40 years. And what have we had for 40 years? It's exactly what we've had. Less men and women in ministry who believe the gospel and the word of God than any time prior proportionately to the population of our country where all these great colleges like Yale and Harvard were all seminaries in the founding of this nation to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom. And now they're cesspools of filth and vile things, every ugly, dark, sinister thing against the kingdom of God in the name of freedom as they define it, while they suppress freedom of thought and freedom of speech. This is what you get. But we're not moved by that. Because what do we see during stagnation? We see an ebb and flow. We see some tribes losing two-thirds of who they are and some tribes gaining two-thirds of who they'll become. We see Joshua and Caleb just like, okay, they're gone. They're gone. We're here. And in the end, they're going to enter in. That's what they're going to do. So we can never lose sight for the people of promise who aren't stagnant but are going forward in faith. That there's a future and a hope, and we're going to enter in. So that's why we're here, because we're going to enter in. We've gotten stronger in the last year, not weaker. We've gotten more purposeful and more intentional. I love the new words like intentional. It's like kind of, you know, like, you know, it's like, ah. Unprecedented so yesterday, but intentional still today, right? And what we're doing, and that's who we are. I spent the first three weeks of this year at Arc Montebello with the incredible staff at Pancho Juarez. It's been there for years as he's approaching his 70th birthday. Then I spent the next weekend with Rob Salvato's staff at Calvary Vista, including Joe Henschel, leading worship, with Steve, his dad, who ordained me. I spent that Saturday with them. Then I had coffee with Jim Gallagher at Calvary Chapel Vero Beach, the man who's probably had a greater impact than we'll ever know for the body of Christ in the Calvary Chapel movement. Jim Gallagher's under the radar. He's Hall of Fame in the Calvary movement. Make no mistake about it. He's incredible. And I talk with him about what's going on in the church, not to mention his son, my son-in-law, Nate, and hearing from him how they've navigated the last year. And before that, I had breakfast with Jeff Johnson at Downey. So I was a pastor, Jeff, in Downey, and then I was with Ed Taylor in Denver. So I'm coming from the greater body of Christ of the Calvary Movement in the first three weeks, and I can tell you Unanimously and across the board, what I'm hearing from all of them is their churches got stronger spiritually. And they're all doing strong financially as well, which is the same for us. Last year was a very strong year for us financially. It's incredible. But we're not moving in fear, we're moving in faith. So we, we believe the great things from the Lord. And like William Carey said, attempt great things from God and expect great things from God. And that's who we are, that's our DNA. That's our legacy from Pastor Chuck, getting from a, a small church in Huntington Beach to where we are now. So we are a people of faith. So whatever's going stagnant around us, churches that haven't opened after 10 months, and you know what? It's their deal. If they don't think they can open, and something's going to go wrong for them, or whatever the local laws are, and it's mask everywhere. Let me tell you, across the United States, it's mask everywhere. Even when changed counties in Colorado, it's all good. But the church is the church, and we got to be the church. And that's one thing I'm hearing from all these generals of the Calvary movement. We're the church, and we're going forward. We've done our best. We're going to keep doing our best. You're going to be safer and cleaner here than you would a box store or the grocery store you go to. And if you're comfortable with that, then come to church. If you're not, then stay home. But you have to ask yourself, if you're comfortable going to Walmart, not comfortable going to church, why is that? And I'm quoting Ed Taylor now on Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel Aurora. And isn't that a good question, right? If you're comfortable, if you feel comfortable going to Walmart and, and Albertsons, but you're not going to go into church, ask yourself why. And if you don't think your church isn't clean enough, let us explain to you why it is. Or maybe help us make it to that standard. Talking with Ed Taylor about the attacks on Skip Isaac being slandered, accused of being a murderer, and all these things in Albuquerque. With all these people coming against the church. Listen, they're going to come against us anyways. They're going to come against us anyways. So if COVID's the excuse to attack us for our faith and our obedience to the Lord, then that's what it's going to be. Just remember, Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. Because in the end, it's about Jesus. That's the bottom line. So we should not be moved. And we should just consider ourselves steadfast, and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. We are not the people that are stagnant. Don't be stagnant. We weren't stagnant in 2020. We have no intention of being stagnant in 2021. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. We're marching toward the promised land and the promises. That's what we're doing. We're going forward. Adelante. Verse 57. And these are those who are numbered the Levites, according to the families of Gershon, the family of the Gershonites, Kohath, the family of the Kohathites, and Mori, the family of the Morites. These are the families of the Levites, the family of the Libanites the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Mahalites, the family of the Mushites, and the family of the Korathites. And the Korathite, excuse me, and Koath begot Amram, and the name of Amram's wife was Yochabed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And to Amram, she bore Aaron, Moses, and their sister Miriam. So, of course, Yochabed is the mother of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. To Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and Nadab and Abihu died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. You read about that in Leviticus. Now those who were numbered of them were 23,000 every male from a month old and above, for they were not numbered among the other children of Israel because there was no inheritance given them among the children of Israel. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eleazar the priest who numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. But among these that were, there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai for the Lord had said to them they shall surely die in the wilderness so there was not left a man of them except Caleb the son of Jephne and Joshua the son of Nun so the back part of 26 here we get the levite census which is almost the same as the earlier levite census at the beginning of the journey was 20, uh, excuse me, twenty-two thousand two seventy-three, and here we get twenty-three thousand straight up. So this is an increase, a moderate increase. Not a lot of, lot of not a lot of move, but it wasn't. They 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 went forward. They didn't regress in numbers. They increased in numbers, and they had no inheritance in the land because their inheritance is their service to the Lord. Now we pick it up in chapter twenty-seven. The daughters of Zelophe, Zolophad. Then came the daughters of Zolophad, the son of Hepher, we read about them last chapter, the son of Gilead, the son of Micah, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters, Mahala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses, and before of the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation, by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord, in the company of Korah. but he died in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the names of our father, why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our fathers and brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "The daughters of Zolophath speak what is right." I love that verse. You shall surely give them a the possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give it to inheritance to the father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses." The land will be divided, and the book of Judges reads all about, tells all about the division of the land, and we already saw last chapter that the subdivisions of the tribes is based upon the size of the tribe, and by the lot. Now, the New, Old Testament tells us the lot belongs to the Lord. So they roll the lot, and say, you know, we trust that God is, you know, over the universe, and He can guide this lot, like rolling the dice, who gets what. And so, they did get in the land, and the land was subdivided, so Naphtali and Zebulun are up by, toward Lebanon, and Dan's up there as you go towards Syria, and Judah's in the south, and, and all that kind of stuff. The tribes all got their places. And the, the land was to stay in the tribe. It was an inheritance. Remember, they're in a covenant, a covenant relationship, and the, the land would be passed from generation to generation. And you, you talk about, like, women's rights or what's fair and reasonable, the, the daughter's like, hey, that, like, we're, just because we're daughters, I mean, we shouldn't get it, right? And God's like, right. Right, that's that's correct. They speak what's right, the daughters of Zolophad. So they get inheritance. But of course, if if there are no daughters, then it goes up, it goes across to the uncles and then up one more generation that way to keep it in the to keep the property within the tribe. So that was that was how God did it. You like so if you married within the tribe, you keep the property. If you married outside of the tribe, you might give up your portion of the inheritance and, and because you want to do that and you want to marry that way that's just the way it worked, and it was a system that God set up to preserve the land and ensure the inheritance is passed on. Now, this is all earthly inheritance, and Peter came to Jesus one time and said, look, Lord, we've left everything for you. Like, man, we left, because the rich unruler ruler went away and said, Jesus said, just one thing you lack, go sell all your goods and you'll be good. But that was the one thing that ruled him, his, his lust of possessions and all that. And Peter said, well, look, we, we left everything for you, and you know, like, what's up there? And Jesus was like, hey, anyone that's left family, parents, loved ones, property, houses in my name, lost that in my name, how much more they'll get in this life and how much more in the next life. You might think, okay, so that means if I lost a house because of Jesus, I get two houses in this life. I wouldn't look at it that way. You ever notice like the best things in life are pretty much free? Like my sister lives in this high rise in San Diego and she says her favorite thing to do is just watch the planes land. That's free. When we live in Cardiff, we used to take our kids down to San Diego Airport. We'd park right where they take off. Like, <laughs> like that, and Timmy would just be like, <laughs> you know, like, it's free. How many times you buy your kids Christmas presents? And they play with the box, not the toy, right? Well, now they all get gift cards, so it's not the same, but the best things in life are free. You can't put a price tag on a sunset in Kauai or a sunrise on the Atlantic Ocean with the tropical clouds. That's free. When you're walking on the beach with your daughter south end of Vero Beach and there's no one around with your daughter and your sister and Hannah goes, look dad, and here's five dolphins right by the shore just coming along. It's free. That's free. It's beautiful. The things that really matter are, are, are free. Like we're blessed and we can enjoy those blessings. The earth is Lord's everything in it. And it's all a matter of how we frame things, how we put a perspective on them. Our inheritance from the Lord is incredible in this life. Jesus said, I give you joy. He says he gives abundant life, and it's abundant joy. It's joy unspeakable, and it's abundant life. And no one can take that from us. So if we don't have abundant life in our soul, if we don't have joy in our human experience, that's not on Jesus. That's on us. That's on how we're framing things in our life. Because the real inheritance that we receive right now is we walk in eternal life. Like Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. And then he's like, later, hey, we left the house for you. Like, what about that? And he's like, what about it? What about it? How much more is there in the coming kingdom? This whole life is told, both in the Old and New Testament, it's a vapor. It's just a blip. It's just a, and it's gone. It's all about eternity. And the challenge of the Holy Spirit is to get us to de- let go of things of time and gravitate toward things of eternity to change our polar pools as to gravitational pools as to what we're living for earthly inheritances they just it all gets redistributed when the prussians were coming to power as the germans when they became a nation like around 1870 after they thumped the french in the prussian french war and the, the modern dramatic state began to come together uh, kaiser william and those guys and uh, bismarck and they they're and they're they're all in their power and the germans were really rising they were super powerful they became the glo- they became the power of europe and had defeated the french and the Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they were they were rolling. they were threatening England and the Victorian Empire and all that stuff. And it's interesting because these chancellors—they had these backdoor meetings. And I've been reading this book about this. But they just said, "Look, we all know it's all going to get redistributed after we're gone, and it's all going to get redistributed. But what we need to do now is gather all we can and build a super bad navy so we can take on the British, which is exactly what they did with the U-boats in World War One. But they said within themselves, it all gets redistributed because these are former like Saxony or, or like I mean." Um, you know the farther Germanic tribes of the south, and all the Prussian areas. Those are Teutonic Knights around 1000 AD. That's the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia. But it just kept existing, and then Prussia got really strong, and then the and then Kaiser and William the and they just and they brought together, and suddenly, and from that arises the modern German state, and World War One, and then Hitler, World War Two, and the people who built the rockets to put our men on the moon, all those German scientists that that we got from the that the Russians didn't get. But you know what's funny? It did get redistributed, didn't it? The Germany of Prussia when it became modern Germany is not the Germany that we now see. I mean, the Soviets split Germany in half and called it East Germany and West Germany, right? Like Czechoslovakia, then it's the Czech Republic and Slovakia. It all gets redistributed. Whatever you think your inheritance is for homes and and land and property and assets, it all gets redistributed. It all gets left behind. It all gets redistributed. We just have to remember that. See, we want security to enjoy life when we're younger. And we want security to make sure we're not a burden to our children when we're older or that we're not begging for food when we're, you know, in our elder age and we think like that. But in the end, it all gets redistributed. And I tell you again, Peter the Great's last day, one of the greatest kings of all time, bring a piece of paper and he writes, I give this to," And then he dropped dead. He was trying to give it away. This great king, modern Russia, Peter the Great. Incredible. Like 1725, they whooped the Swedes and now they're a superpower. Modern Russia was born. What is he trying to do his last day? He's trying to give it away. Our inheritance is in heaven. Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven where even moth can not break in, steal and destroy. Our treasure is in heaven. And the fact that we're here tonight would indicate our treasure is in heaven. But let's be reminded on January 19th, as men and women seize power, as they want power, as they want to possess, because their worldviews don't reproduce, they're not productive. They just steal and take. That's what they do. The worldview our country is founded on is productive and produces more, but the worldview that's coming upon us is not a production worldview. It's a taking worldview, and sooner or later, it's all been taken, and you can't redistribute it unless you need more, more, more. So whatever could be taken from us in our future, whether it seems like freedom of speech, we'll have lots of freedom of speech in eternity. And by the way, we'll say, "Praise you, Jesus, King of Kings, in eternity," right? And what did Romans 8 says? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not famine, peril, or sword. Like, our inheritance is in heaven. Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, we'd take it by force, but it's not. You're not like the kings of the world that lord over one another, now it be so with you, but you'll be the servant of all, and in losing your life, you'll find it. You'll gain it. And what treasures and riches for all eternity of another dimension, so beyond our cognitive capacities, are there for us as we are willing to lay down everything for King Jesus. Willing at one life to lay it down for King Jesus. As Elizabeth Elliott said before she went to be with the Lord, everything you lose can become a sacrifice to the Lord. Everything. Husbands, careers, identity, reputation, it all becomes an offering to the Lord. And we're just storing up wealth for eternity. We're not storing up good investments with UBS to take care of us when we're 90. We're storing up investments for eternity when we're on the other side of 90. That's what we're doing in all that we do in obedience to the Lord in 2021 and our future. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread in the gates of the city. We, now more than ever, the body of Christ needs to have an eternal perspective. And I'm amazed at how easily I'm offended when I feel like even a threat to take things away from me. We just need to realize we got Jesus and that's all we need. And no one can ever take Jesus from us. That's the beauty of it. And whatever he's given us, he's given us. And whatever he takes from us, allows me to take it from us. That's an offering to the Lord. And whatever we let go in this life, you can be sure, Jesus said, how much more will you have in the life to come? So I say again tonight what I said a few weeks ago. I can't even comprehend what God must have for those people who lay down their lives for Christ in 2,000 years of church history in the, in the name of the gospel, in the name of the great Savior, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lost, left everything and gained nothing and laid down their lives, what treasures and riches they have in eternity beyond description in this life that we can't even understand cognitively in this finite mind. We might be able to put a jeep and people on Mars someday, jeep now, people future, but this super mind that God gave Adam, our forefather, and Eve, our foremother, it still can't comprehend what's in the next dimension for us. It's glory. That's our inheritance. Romans 8 tells us that we're adopted in his family, and once we've suffered with Christ, we reign with Christ and we receive the estate and we receive the trust and everything in it. But that's not this side. Solomon said, on this side, you leave it behind, and everyone fights over it. We're talking about the next side and real treasure. So good for the daros is zolified, but better for us if our treasures are in heaven. We close it out tonight, verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into this Mount Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Mirabat Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Of course, we remember this, where Moses struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, and the consequence was God still blessed the people, but Moses is not going in the promised land. But he gets to see it. And as we said in the New Testament, he shows up in the promised land at the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah, with Jesus. Verse 16. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord by for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. And he and all the children of Israel with him all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of moses what the people needed at this time as moses had been their leader for 40 years is a transition to a new leader and they need to have a leader who's seeking the lord led by the lord who can lead for the lord now this is a great principle for all of us in our especially for the men in marriage for the parents with children and for anyone that leads anyone in any capacity whether it's a sports team or a small classroom or anything, like if you're the one taking care of your family because no one else will, and it, has, it falls on you, right? That you are led of the Lord, who's the good shepherd and lays on his life for the sheep. That you're led by the Lord, so you have the mind of the Lord. You have the mind of the good shepherd. So whoever you're leading, you have a shepherd's heart, not a hireling. A shepherd. And our shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes his life from him. He has authority to take it, lay it down, take it up, which is exactly what he did. But that we have to be led of the Lord. There's a simplicity in whatever God wants to do in our life going forward in this new year. We seek the Lord. We're led by the Lord. And even if you're a shepherd like me in the ministry, we're told in 1 Peter that we're going to give an account to the chief shepherd, so we need to be led by the chief shepherd, who is the good shepherd, so we can lead and be true shepherds. I have many goals that flow down from a macro goal just to be a faithful shepherd to this flock, to this church, to this calling. And I'm surrounded by men like Sam and Anthony and Broderick and these guys, Alex and Garrett, that are the same way. we We just want to be led of the Lord. Our deacons are the same way. We want to be led of the Lord. Our wives are the same way. We want to be led of the Lord to lead for the Lord with the heart of the Lord. That's who we are. And nothing else matters as we go forward in 2021 for the leadership. That's it. I mean, we don't need organizations. Organizations are taking over the world in silence and any opposing view. We need the living organism of the living God, the church, with men and women who have the mind of Christ to lead for Christ. So our goal, as you pray for us, is to be led of the Lord and to lead for the Lord and that we're leading you and we're feeding you the word of God. We're tending you with the heart of God in the church and we're, we're, we're leading you beside still waters and green pastures while there's wolves all around us. That's our goal. That's our objective. And that can be yours, too, in whatever responsibilities you have for other people. Be led. Be led of the Lord that we can lead for the Lord. And I told you this, and I don't think I'll cry tonight, but I've cried every time I brought it up. In the middle of last year, I had a moment where I was like, God, I just wish Pastor Chuck was here. Because I know he'd be giving clear leadership in all these strange things that are unprecedented and so bizarre. I don't even know what to think. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly. Well, he's not. He's with me, but you are, so lead for me. And that made my life really simple. And that's, <laughs> I can't even tell my about not crying. But like, Chuck is not here. And that's the one man I look to that can say, this is what's going on, this is how we handle it. So I can look to the, his sons of the faith like Skip and Raw and Greg and these guys and Jeff there are lawsuits against them and people, death threats against them, false accusations. But you know what? I'm here. That's the Lord said. I'm here. And I need to do what I'm called to do. And you're here. And we need to do what we're called to do. So let's be led like Moses was, like Joshua would be, that we can lead and not be intimidated by darkness and evil, but to embrace who's leading us and to embrace where he's leading us because the good shepherd We'll have our back to the end. In the end, that psalm, he says, I prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And he anoints our head with oil. It's It's a really good ending Psalm 23. There's no bad part to it. But you do go through the valley of the shadow of death. So let's be led. Not just to be led, but lead so we can lead others at such a crucial time in human history.